1: management teams and boards get into trouble, is that they start doing dumb things, trying to please Wall Street.
0: When you see problems before they arise and have a vision for how to do things differently, you end up with a pretty incredible career.
1: I think we were pioneers, and really what we were trying to do is take a situation where the ownership is diffuse in a public company, and try to galvanize that ownership to Affect positive change.
0: Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. And over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena today we're celebrating a big milestone for the show it's our 100th episode of welcome to the arena and we're marking that huge achievement with a two-part interview with an influential player in the investment world our guest today has had an incredible career and our conversation was packed with inspiring stories and insightful advice we're sitting down for part one of our interview with ed garden chairman and ceo of garden investments Prior to starting Garden Investments, Ed founded Tryon Fund Management in 2005 with Nelson Peltz and Peter May. He was chief investment officer at TriAn until May of 2023 and presently serves as a senior advisor. As chief investment officer, Ed oversaw Tryon's portfolio management idea generation and due diligence activities. He has extensive experience engaging with public company management teams and boards and currently serves on the board of General Electric. He previously served on boards of Bank of New York Mellon, Family Dollar Stores, Invesco, Janice Henderson Group, Pentair, The Wendy's Company, and Trier Companies earlier in his career. Ed worked at Credit Suisse First Boston as an investment banker in BT Alex Brown, where he was co-head of Equity Capital Markets. Ed has a BA in Economics from Harvard. In part one, we'll dive into how Ed broke into the investment world and hear Tryon's origin story. Next week, we get deeper into some of Ed's board experiences and his new venture with Garden Investments. Let's enter the arena with Ed Garden.
1: I grew up in Irish Catholic Boston in the 70s. So my grandfather had come over from Ireland and became, you know, the proverbial Irish cop in Boston and, you know, settled the family in the South Boston Dorchester, you know, area. And my father actually came down from Nova Scotia and his father, they came down. My father became a naturalized citizen when he was a teenager and his father was a barber. And so there was no education and there was no money and, you know, very religious. I used to call my mother an apostle (laughs) because, um, you know, I was the youngest of six and in my town, you know, we were considered a small family, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 was not unusual. Um, so we were considered small at six and I was the youngest, but the, um, you know, the, the gig was, you know, we had to go to church before school during Lent I you know it was a given I had to be an altar boy um where well, you had to do the rosary at night on our knees that kind of thing banging the novena's so, out on Friday yeah, and have to have to go to confession on Saturdays and yeah. I'd be I'd say to my mother mom like what did you do wrong in the last week that <laughs> you have to go again like, I know like, it was madness yeah but that was that was the gig I was the youngest by a lot my oldest sister started dating a guy Um, when she was a freshman in high school and he was a senior in high school at our public high school and my dad was pissed because he did not want my sister dating a senior that's my brother-in-law today but he was going to harvard and he was from a poor family and he was valedictorian of the class and he was captain of three sports and once he and my father started communicating and my father would would say it never even crossed my mind that anyone would go to college yeah because it just wasn't our family until jack came around and basically jack's story was that you know good athlete good student and it opens up doors for college so that became sort of the rallying cry for myself and my my brother who was number five in the pecking order and so it got drilled in I was probably three when they started dating. It got drilled into my mind like you got to be a good student and a good athlete. So that sort of was a watershed event for the family because my brother ended up, you know, being a very good hockey player and going to Exeter and Dartmouth, and then I went to Andover and Harvard.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I I have had a few conversations with you over the years how hockey has kind of changed your life. and But I think, you know, the takeaway is uh, you're – in the Wall Street Journal and on CNBC and all this stuff, you know, you really come from like humble beginnings where you certainly know the value of money. But when you got out of Harvard, what was your first job and how did you land that?
1: Well, I um, I had no role models and I really didn't know what, you know, to do as a career. At Harvard, I heard kids talking about getting into security Securities. I, I thought they were talking about security. Yeah, and I was like, "Why does everybody want to be in security? Like working security understand. at Fenway yeah, or something?" But they're like, "Everyone wants to be in security." I don't understand <laughs> that, right? And I um, know I was so clueless. But I worked at Kidder Peabody for half a minute. Yeah, in a sales training program, and then realized that you know the I needed to get to New York and and get a job. So. I went down to New York and um, I actually stole a directory of Wall Street firms from the Harvard placement office. And I know I, I, I am, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I, I Goldman Sachs meant nothing to me. Yeah. You didn't More know anything. Meant nothing. I, I, I didn't know anything. I just knew I needed a job. My friend was working at Kidder. Um, he had just gotten a job. He was a very good hockey player, a bunch of traders at Kidder wanted him on the trading floor. And his advice was just walk in off the street. So that's what I was going to do. So I literally just started in the A's And started working my way through lower Manhattan in the A's. But I had probably walked into three or four places. You know, when you walk into a skyscraper in lower Manhattan and say you want a job, they send you to HR, you know, and you're sitting there interviewing for a mailroom position and then I, I'd gotten turned down, I don't know how many times, but I was kind of burned out. It was towards the end of the day. And I was thinking, I've only got one more left in me. I'm going to take one more shot on goal. Yeah. And if there's one thing I learned from hockey, you don't score unless you shoot. So I was thought to myself, I've got one more shot in me. And so I happened to be near 60 Broad Street and I walked into Drexel. Drexel meant nothing to me, but I walked into Drexel and this time, and the only time I said to myself, I'm just going right to a trading floor. So there was a directory, it said trading floor, ninth floor. I literally just took the elevator up. There was a receptionist, you know, right there, but she was talking to a friend and I walked right onto the trading floor and I'd never seen a trading floor. And I remember my heart, racing because you know trading floor is an amazing site with first time yeah right? it's amazing and my heart was racing and i'm like oh man now i finally got here i need to ask somebody for a job and there was a guy right in front of me barking out orders and um he was clearly a boss he was a little bit older and he started walking towards me and i said excuse me sir i just walked in off the street and i need a job <laughs> and he goes what are you a effing nut and i remember blushing Because I was so embarrassed by that. But he said, Where'd you go to college? I said, Harvard. He said, Go sit in that office. And he had a big glass office on the trading floor. It kept me waiting like an hour, but he came in, no exaggeration, Tom. He sits down, first thing he says to me, You're a hockey player. No way. I said, I was. So it's like fate. It's serendipity. He said, Where'd you play in high school? You know, he didn't care about college. He said, Where'd you play in high school? I said, Andover. And he said, Were you any good? And Andover was, you know, back in those days, a bit of a hockey powerhouse. And I said, well, I was captain. He was, he was like, you were captain of Andover? We start talking hockey. And he's saying, when do you want to start? When do you want to start? I'm like, tomorrow. No way. <laughs> Not kidding. That's sick. I, I started immediately.
0: That's like mythology. You know, you hear people like who just like crash trading f- floors to get a job. Like you could never do that these days. You'd be like <laughs> doing time in the pokey, you know?
1: Yeah. Cool
0: story. Fast forward past kind of some of the banking stuff with like BT Alex Brown and Credit Suisse and all that. What did you see in the markets 20 years ago that made you think that an activist firm done the right way would succeed?
1: You know, we'll skip over the BT and Credit Suisse phase, but they were important. Yeah, tell us why. To my thought process. As you know, at BT Alex Brown, BT originally, then BT Alex Brown, as an equity capital markets person, you're sitting between investment banking and sales and trading. And what always was fascinating to me was that on the sales and trading side, as you got to know the big institutional investors, Fidelity Capital, T Row, and so forth, they felt that if they didn't like what was happening at a company, their only option was to sell. Yeah. Right? We're in the 90s, right? That concept to me was was just astounding. The owners of the company feel that if they don't like what's happening, if the management team's doing a bad job or whatever, their only option is to sell. Then when I switched from equity capital markets to covering private equity as an investment banker and watching private equity when they buy a company, right, they are the owners, management reports to them, yeah, totally there's different no story. doubt about who's in charge, right? The board is made up of the private equity partners. The private equity partners know the board as well as management, right? It is such a different dynamic than what I was used to in public equity. And I would argue there's been a transfer of wealth from public share owners to private equity because of that ownership mentality in the boardroom. So the thought process behind Tryon was to bring that ownership mentality to public companies, right, to bring that that private equity type mindset to public companies, and to create value as a result.
0: Ed and his partners, Nelson Peltz and Peter May, had a pretty clear vision when they started trying, but I wanted to know whether they faced some unexpected challenges in those early years
1: nothing ever goes in a straight line right it's always a crooked path yeah at least that's been my experience so when we were starting try and we launched in 05 but the concept of this was incubated you know in the 03 and 04 time frame yeah and i had never even heard the word activist I think we were pioneers because I'd never heard the word activists. We really thought of this as hybrid private equity for the reasons I just described. Yep. And really what we were trying to do is take a situation where the ownership is diffuse in a public company and try to galvanize that ownership to affect, you know, positive change. Yeah. Right. And, and to influence corporate events and corporate behavior it sounded great, but when we went out to actually raise money, it was really hard, Tom, because yeah. there was no track record of running third-party capital, right? Nelson had never had third-party capital. I I was investment banker with no track record in that sense, son-in-law, right? It was a situation where we found it really hard to raise capital. And there were times that... You know, we were ready to give up. I, I really felt that we could pull this off if we could just get started. We went out to a meeting in Chicago, and it was Nelson, Peter, and myself. And we're waiting in the conference. We're kind of at the end of our rope, trying to raise capital to get launched. And a woman walks in, who is a friend of mine from college, and she said, "Eddie, you know, great to see you." Like. And I said, w- "What are you doing here?" And she said, "Oh, I'm one of the I'm one of the partners, Some yeah. of the founders." I said, "You're kidding me!" And she said, "I'll be right back. I'm gonna you know go get my partners." And when she left the room, I turned to Nelson and Peter and said, "We might be screwed here because uh, <laughs> she saw me at my worst in college."
0: Something at a keg party or something, whatever. Yeah. yeah.
1: Anyways, um, they they became an anchor investor. That's awesome. We pinned one other. Institutional investor, we launched with I want to say like three hundred and fifty million bucks. Tom, yeah, it was tiny, yeah. right? But what we did was we started executing on the you know the plan, and we started showing people the all the people who had looked at us and passed, we started showing them how we do things, and we started showing them the work product before we made an investment, and then showing what actually happened. And we slowly started building momentum from a fundraising perspective and then there was a point in time, maybe five, six, seven years in where we became institutionally blessed yeah and we were I think considered blue chip in the activist space and you know sovereign wealth funds, public and private pension plans you know saw us as you know a blue chip uh, player in the asset class and the AUM went you know north of 14 you know, close to 15 billion. And I, but I think there was, there was a need for a lot of perseverance in those early days.
0: Yeah. And, um, when you say you showed the work product, was that your process in, you know, filling the funnel with ideas and coming down to the one idea that you're going to act on? Because my guess is you must've felt a ton of pressure to come out with like an early win or two, or it was going to be kind of over. Right.
1: Exactly right. And the, when I talk about the work product, we, we called it the white paper. And the white paper always had sort of the same flow, which is why we like the company, right? Because we want to invest in companies we really believe in and like. The second part was the poor track record at the company. What's gone on, right? The indictment, if you will. And then the third part would be the try plan, to get it fixed. The initiatives to get it fixed. And by the way, there's lots of companies that are underperforming. The hard part is finding a company you really love, and even more difficult is coming up with a plan that you believe hand over heart and you're willing to put your entire net worth at stake yep. to get that fixed and that your plan will get it fixed. And so we would put all that in a white paper, which I think by itself was a great discipline because it forced you to put in on paper exactly what your thesis was and what you were going to do.
0: When you talk about being institutionally blessed, like I feel like once you hit that critical mass, you got a ton of press. And I felt it was positive for the most part. But I, I think the reality is you were called a constructivist, or I, I forget the term they used, but it was different than an activist because you were actually coming in and constructively trying to bring change to the company, right? That's what made you guys different.
1: Yeah. The way I would describe it is that, to me, there are sort of two types of activists. The vast majority of activists are balance sheet centric. Yeah. Right so they're going in and they want the company broken up they want a division sold they want to you know put some leverage on and buy back debt they want the company sold you see that a lot recently right we want the company sold to private equity that's being a balance sheet activist to me that's not a lot of value add number 1 right no, that's that's very aggressive and number 2 the problem with that is it only works when the capital markets are Um, Supportive, right? I'm not sure it works. When the M and A market is shut down, when rates are going up, like that's not a great way to prosecute activism. Our activism was income statement centric, right? It was how are we going to get sales up? How are we going to take expenses down? How are we going to come up with new products? How are we going to, you know, grow the E? in the PE, we, we always felt that we couldn't control the PE, but we should be able to have a lot of influence on the E. Yeah.
0: If the E grows, the PE takes care of itself, right?
1: And it's not just cutting costs. We had a very strong philosophy about what it took to grow earnings. Yeah, And if you really study what we did, we basically, you know, ran the same play on almost every investment. Based around this operating philosophy. And we felt that complexity was the killer of margin.
0: Yeah, Too many products.
1: We would Pareto everything. The 80-20 rule would kind of show you where the inefficiencies are.
0: Yeah.
1: And one of the most stark examples is, and don't hold me to these numbers exactly, but they'll be directionally correct. Yeah. We are big investors in Mondelez. We had actually been a catalyst to separate Mondelez from Kraft. Yep. And put it together with Cadbury. So it was you know basically Nabisco and Cadbury. And we cut something like 45,000 SKUs out of 70,000 and lost something like 1.6% of sales. Unbelievable. But if you think about that, um, every single SKU has raw materials, yeah. it has a manufacturing process, it takes up space in a warehouse, it takes up space in an IT system, it takes up space you know in the sales force's brain. And you're not... Getting a whole lot for all of that work, and so that's what we would do: we'd pareto everything and get management to attack the complexity. The second thing we would always do is make sure that the business was being run by P and L. And we tended to invest in big companies where they were multi-business, and in that case, you know, you have a holding company sitting above the business segments, and a lot of the big companies are quote unquote, matrixed, which means the concept is we're going to do a bunch of stuff up above the business units and get synergies because we're doing it in one place up above. And that's the matrix. So we're going to have purchasing up above the business units. We're going to have distribution. We're going to have marketing. We're going to have sales. We're going to have R&D. We're going to name it.
0: Yeah. So it could be shared across the business units.
1: Right. And and by the way, it's not an idiotic thought. And I would always say to management teams, it's like communism. It sounds great on paper. It just never works. And the reason is you end up with your costs that are not on anyone's P&L. So a great example was Procter & Gamble. The person running the soap business, Tide, which standalone was one of the biggest consumer products companies in the world, didn't control their sales force. And so when you would ask the person running the soap business why they're not doing better they would say because the sales force is giving away Tide in order to sell Gillette razors yeah yeah so we would basically always look to blow up the matrix and push the cost down into somebody's P&L Nelson would always say you can't have a P with no L attached right and push all the costs onto somebody's P&L because that's the only way you can hold business unit leaders accountable and then just lastly like focus A lot of companies, just too many businesses that are never going to move the needle, but take up time and money. And then lastly, getting compensation right so that people only get paid if they actually grow the company profitably.
0: Yeah. Just generally, when you look at a company that you feel is mismanaged or not maximizing value for the shareholders, how often... Is capital allocation the issue and how often is it governance or are the two just like extricably linked? Like what's your take on those two things?
1: I'll tell you, um, and you've probably seen it from your seat in your career. I think the biggest reason that management teams and boards get into trouble is that they start doing dumb things, you know, a lot of times with capital. Yeah trying to please Wall Street. And it might be an acquisition. It might be um, spending money trying to grow. I remember uh, there was a restaurant company that we were involved with. And the CEO had opened all these stores. And he had a big equity stake. And we said, are you getting a return on these stores? And he said, no, not great. We said, then why are you doing it? He said, because Wall Street wants to see growth. Yeah, like, it makes no sense.
0: Ed, I got to tell you, I can't tell you how many times, it's funny you bring up the restaurant business, but once you've been doing something for 20 or 30 years, you know, you meet these CEOs and the quality they need to get to that position is part sales. And a lot of times you'll get someone who's kind of a pleaser, you know, they walk into Fidelity and Fidelity's like, well, you need to open 20 restaurants this year, 30 next year, 50 next year, 70. And they're kind of like... They tell the investor what they want to hear, exactly what you're saying. And by the time it all pans out, the person's like lost their job and it's a total disaster. And I think it's because most CEOs and management teams are great operators and great at building a company and doing that. They don't really get the art of the stock market and what creates or destroys value like in any given day. And it's not their fault sometimes, actually. That's what the board is for. The board should have someone who like gets that.
1: I would always say, "Okay, everyone, let's take a deep breath, okay, yeah. and think about if we owned a hundred percent of this company, and all of our net worth is tied up in this company. What should we be doing? Okay, and forget quarterly numbers. Okay, I don't care about quarterly numbers. We're trying to compound over ten years, right? We need to compound earnings over ten years. How are we going to do that? I'm not interested in putting up." you know, two quarters and doing dumb things like cutting marketing expense, right, that are going to make the quarter look better, but it's going to hurt the brand in the longer term, things like that.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. We're in violent agreement. Going into a few other case studies, you kind of deconglomerated, for lack of a better term, uh, companies like DuPont. What, What was the thesis there and how would you describe engaging with DuPont?
1: DuPont was fascinating. Um, obviously an iconic U.S. company. DuPont's, you know, one of the oldest U.S. companies. It was created around the time of the Revolutionary War. By the time we invested, the stock had basically been down over a 30 year time period. And it was truly a conglomerate, a lot of different businesses under that corporate umbrella, and it was highly matrixed. Okay, it was a lot of the costs up above the business units, and the businesses were disparate. Right? They didn't. It's not like there was a lot of synergies between the businesses, and so I led the conversations with Ellen Coleman up until the the proxy fight, and I told Ellen, who was the German CEO at the time, that the in our mind the conglomerate had failed. And I had one example to really crystallize that point. They had sold their coatings business to Carlisle. That business today is called Exalta, and it's a public company. They had sold the coatings business to Carlisle, and they put out an 8K saying that they had sold the business, and they gave a multiple, which was a big multiple. And off the top of my head, they suggested that this company had $340 million of EBITDA, and... We saw the Carlisle financing deck because now they're going to the leveraged loan market and the high market to finance the acquisition. This is not years later. This is a couple months later. And they're showing 570 of EBITDA. So in the conglomerate, under the DuPont conglomerate, allocated a bunch of costs, okay? It had 340 of EBITDA. Oh my God. What Carlisle was showing the market was 570. So think about that you know the whole reason i have a conglomerate just like is a full the arbitrage economies right yeah. and 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 here companies were more profitable outside the conglomerate than inside the conglomerate and so as long as that was the case like the conglomerate couldn't perpetuate and you know we basically had a proxy fight over that topic they won the proxy fight but it just couldn't it couldn't last and you know she just kept missing numbers She wouldn't listen and she got fired by the board and they brought in Ed Breen and the first thing, you know, Ed Breen did was literally, I saw it on CNBC that he was hired as CEO and uh, the phone rang and it was Ed Breen. And Nelson and I started spending time with him and taking him through our thesis and that led to the subsequent combination with Dow and subsequent three-way split. Which was really a great, you know, I think a very great move. Yeah. We made about I think when it was all said and done, about three times our money.
0: The the other interesting thing is just like the human nature of it all. Sometimes like someone's ego just can't accept like pivoting and saying like, oh, you know what? Like you might be right. I mean, yeah. It's crazy. You know, they have big egos and you know, it's just like human nature to to want to save face and not admit like, Hey, you know, maybe we could have approached this a different way.
1: We had a saying, at try which is, would rather be rich than right. Right. You're not trying to win a debate. Yeah. You're trying to make money. And so it was important to put your ego aside and listen to the power of the argument and make a judgment based on the power of the argument, not on whether you're right or wrong. Yeah. And I think having that attitude that you'd rather be rich than right is important. And I think in the case of DuPont, there was an element of this activist investor is not going to tell me what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she would have been CEO for a long time if she had, you know, listened to us.
0: And sometimes it's the board, right? It's a bunch of older people who get paid a lot of money and they're just like, what does he know?
1: The problem with public company boards, and by the way, there's lots of very good public company boards, obviously. So I'm generalizing, but when you have a bad public company board, you you tend to have people on that board who are exercising their retirement plan.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right?
1: Where they're a retired executive, um, they don't want to work full time, but they don't want to play golf every day. Yeah. So they're going to sit on two or three boards, make you know 300000 dollars. Per board, they're gonna put a f- you know a few days in every quarter, you know, probably go to some cool locations. If you think about that, it keeps you in the game, right? Yeah, relevant, it gives you psychic income because you know you're telling people at the Saturday night cocktail party that you know you're on the board of XYZ. Yep. It gives you retirement income. And when you think about that, there's absolutely zero incentive to rock the boat. So if the CEO isn't doing a great job, There's not a lot of incentive to to fight.
0: ED'S tenacity, smarts, and great instincts helped him build an amazing company with Tryon. But there's more to his ongoing career story, and we'll dive into that on next week's episode. Welcome to the arena. We're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I wanna thank Ed Garden for joining us today to talk about his amazing career. Don't miss part two of this interview next week where we talk to Ed about his new venture, Garden Investments. I also wanna thank listeners out there who've tuned in as we've made our way to 100 episodes. It's a lot of fun talking to these incredible people and we're grateful that you're all listening in. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena.